0: You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, Plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero.
1: Hello from Washington, D.C. This is episode eight. Today, we will have a captivating talk about the author's right and the book, Copyright, Creativity, Big Media and Cultural Values, Incorporating the Author, by our guest, a university professor, legal historian, and social legal researcher. But before we talk about her book, let's talk about the author's exclusive rights. In episode 2 and 3, we talk about copyright. In episode 2, I took a general overview of copyright and in episode 3, we talk about copyright in the film industry. Today, we will focus on the exclusive rights that an author has over his, her, their work. Do you remember which are the two types of rights that exist? or could exist depending on your country, moral rights, and economic rights. In some countries, moral rights are the right to be recognized as the author of the work, the protection of the work's integrity, and the author's reputation, among others. And the economic rights allow the author to receive the fruit of his, her, or their work. Let's dive into three economic rights reproduction, distribution, and public communication. The author is the only one who can make or authorize copies of his, her, their work, which is known as reproduction. Typically, this exclusivity extends from the physical to the virtual level, with some clear exceptions. The author can, for example, act against unauthorized digital copies. In addition to having the right to authorize copies, the author has the right to allow their sale. The author has the right to determine the commercial channels through which the work will be offered to the public, that is, distribution. But wait, here we find a critical limit, which is known as the first sale. There are different applications to this limitation, but if an authorized copy of the book is sold in an authorized bookshop and the person who buys it sells it to a secondhand bookstore, In most cases, the author cannot prevent that second sale or seek profit from it. Thanks to this limitation of first sale, we have the used book market and many others. The author has the exclusive right to communicate with the public, which usually corresponds to wire or wireless transmission. For example, the songs that we listen to in a public space must pay a fee to their owners. In practice, this is handled by an agreement with the copyright management organizations where an establishment, such as a hotel or a restaurant, pays periodically to use their musical repertoire. Other economic rights, such as translation,
0: adaptation,
1: and interpretation, will be discussed in other episodes. Now let's talk with our guest and discover the book Copyright, Creativity, Big Media, and Cultural Values, Incorporating the author.
0: Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property.
1: Today, we have the great pleasure of talking with a scholar whose research explores laws and practices that inform knowledge creation and the production, distribution and reception of technology and culture.
0: Hi, I'm Kathy Bowery. I live in a World Heritage Area of the Blue Mountains in Sydney, Australia, on the lands of the Gundangara and the Darug peoples. I'm a professor of law in the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales, and I'm a co-director of the International Society for the History and Theory of Intellectual Property.
1: Hello, Cathy. Can you please walk us through the main idea behind your new book?
0: The main idea for the book is that intellectual property is really about people. It's about how they understand the value of their creativity and how they use business relationships and systems to control their works and connect with audiences. Legal rights and deals are only a small part of what matters and opportunities that are presented to creators change all the time. So, for example, I talk about how Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was really innovative, not because he used an agent to place his Sherlock Holmes stories in, the press in, London and in New York and to be globally syndicated, but because he worked out that he could grow a better audience, a more reliable audience for his stories if he used a recurring character and if he wrote his stories so that they didn't have to be read in any particular order. He also bought shares in the publisher that was selling the magazines that he wrote for. People working in different areas, poets, famous authors, romance novelists, playwrights, opera singers, people involved in film. In the book, I talk about how they all have quite different ambitions and opportunities, and these come and go. So, for example, the opera diva Dame Nellie Melba was really brave at the time that she risked her reputation recording for what was called Canned Music for a gramophone company when serious artists just didn't do that type of thing. There's a really interesting backstory around that too, around the international business deals and manipulation of her personal relationships to bring her around to agreeing to release these recordings at a time when she was actually really only interested in playing them at dinner parties to amuse her regal friends. But this was the first step to the invention of something that we now take very much for granted, the sound recording right. I've written a book about the development of global cultural markets and used lots of examples from the careers of successful artists to explain what the decision making was and how this fitted with the commercial opportunities they had in front of them, but also what the longer term consequences would be for their future ventures. These are not biographies, but they're social histories of creators thinking about the technologies and the politics of the entertainment business as that takes off in the 20th century.
1: Um, would you consider intellectual property a crucial part for development and progress?
0: If you look at the experiences of a range of people who lived and created during the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you have a period of enormous Development of intellectual property internationally, you can see how different opportunities were created through knowing the markets, knowing the technologies, and the distribution opportunities. And of course, knowing the right people with the right connections also mattered a great deal. But sitting behind these things, there's also lobbyists, interest groups, and industry organisations pushing particular ideas about development and progress. One of the chapters of the book looks at how the old relations of empire were leveraged into international book markets, which is how the English language market ended up being controlled from London and New York. Another chapter looks at how it was that Hollywood managed to dominate international film markets without signing up to the Berne Convention and having a valid copyright in many of the markets where American films were sold. I'd argue that intellectual property influences our daily lives mainly through affecting the way we enjoy stories, films and music, through affecting how we know about them, how we get to access them and who we associate with them. In reading the media, you might think that copyright is all about corporate control. It is, of course, but the most important forms of control are the ones that we don't really see. And that's the stuff that the book tries to bring to the surface.
1: Definitely our experiences, what we see, what we consume, what we had access to shapes our minds and our reality. Looking at the description of your book, how copyright generates income and how distribution of profits are allocated in the publishing, film and music industries.
0: The book uses historical examples to try and get people to better understand their own situation and times. Being a creator is about being cognizant of the whole context of what you are doing. What is your message, but also what audiences do you want to meet and how do you want to interact with them? Many creators think about these things in standard terms of what it is possible to do right now. But copyright lasts a long time. Distribution opportunities can change and changes in direction might be more attractive than simply keeping on doing what's been done before. I don't think copyright should be measured simply in terms of the royalties that are received for one type of thing. I think what really counts more is building relationships that can sustain a career. And this is not something that's talked about openly when lawyers usually talk about creators' rights. It's a lot of work to think about this and to use laws in ways that don't tie you down to how things have been done in the past. But if you do this type of work, it can greatly affect the outcomes. And I'd argue that was true in the late 19th century. It was true in the early to mid 20th century. And it is just as relevant advice with the rise of big platforms and streaming services today.
1: Yes, achieving success, especially in the creative industries, it's very much related to relationships to people, not only how you protect your creations. Let's talk about some interesting creators. In your book, you say that Margaret Atwood Radiohead and Banksy are not anti-copyright. Can
0: you explain that to us? The last chapter of the book looks at what is in common in critiques of copyright and commodification offered by three very different kinds of creators. I look at the Canadian poet and writer Margaret Atwood, the band Radiohead and the street artist Banksy. Margaret Ackwood is a mega successful writer whose works like The Handmaid's Tale have been adapted for the screen recently, but she's also published with small presses, feminist presses, and written about the difficulties of being a Canadian writer. She talks to fans and budding writers at festivals about the problem of piracy, arguing that the art of writing involves far more than a transaction. And part of the problem with free culture is the way it devalues the natures of gifts that writers bring to their readers. Radiohead, a very popular experimental British band who did something that, at the time they did it, was very controversial. After a long time with a record deal with EMI, in 2007, they released an album on a pay-as-you-want model. This came after the sale of EMI, which was part of a strategy buying up copyright-back catalogs by venture capitalists on the cusp of streaming taking off. That was one of the things they objected to, and to some extent, this move marked the conclusion of the digital music piracy wars from the early 2000s. But in responding to critics of the band, what they did is they highlighted the role of copyright in supporting artists and new artists in particular, and the question of what was a fair distribution of profits. That remains a common concern with new passive forms of distribution models like Spotify. The street artsist Banksy is a mysterious figure who's famous for his graffiti being levered off buildings to be sold at auction for art auctions that turn out to be involving the sale of self-shredding artworks and whose pest control incorporated trademarks are now being challenged in the European Union. He's a trickster and his use of copyright and trademark completely unsettles conventional legal ideas of how intellectual property rights are supposed to work. A lot of lawyers get really agitated trying to work out if he is for or against commodification. But what commodification is and what the role of law is in supporting commodification is not something that there's any particular rule book and orthodox legal views about how intellectual property rights should be exercised isn't necessarily going to suit what artists want to achieve and isn't necessarily going to serve them particularly well. There's never really been a golden age where intellectual property rights worked well for all artists everywhere in the world Uh, But the most successful creators are ones who've always been actively engaged in understanding their own celebrity, they've been knowledgeable about their genre, they've understood their audiences, and they've played with their own fandom. And I'd argue it's been that way for over 100 years. But we haven't thought about it that way because we get too easily misled by an ideology that fixates on the creator's ownership of an intangible right to a thing. Once we start understanding copyright as the creation of a kind of industrial authorship, and start thinking about how value is created to the development of particular kinds of distribution channels and marketing that create specific kinds of unique cultural experiences for audiences and fans, things will get better. This is not about being anti-copyright, but about taking the potential of copyright ownership far more seriously and making space for more diverse and interesting engagements with culture."
1: Thank you so much, Kathy, for your time. And for the creators out there, know your creative feel, understand your audience, and of course, know how to protect your work with intellectual property. Finally, I highly, highly recommend Katie's book, Copyright, Creativity, Big Media, and Cultural Value, Incorporating the Author. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic.
0: Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law Plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or legal opinion.